0: Hi there! Welcome to Tricks of Politics. I'm your host, Gerardi Quillo.
1: So the the way the way the U.S. is the system, the U.S. system is built is a a, a self sustaining system, right? Like one, not one person has total control. There is the check and balance that if if one person comes in there with a, a vision or a mission that is contrary to these high survivability and strategic interests is going. to The system will flush them out. It's designed to flush them out. That's and that's that's why other countries, especially in Africa, we don't have those type of system because you get one person who's in power is in charge of everything, right? And then whatever he says goes. Here, you are the president, or you were like. I don't know, somebody within within the community, the, the foreign policy community or whatever. If you start acting in the interests that are against the national interests, the system will flash you out in, in, in some shape or form. So from people looking at, from the people outside looking in, they, that's when you think of the idea of a deep state because you still like, oh, I thought he was the president.
0: Warm greetings to you all and our new listeners. Welcome to the first episode of Tricks of Politics. In this episode, we'll be defining foreign policy and delineated contours and different aspects, and I'm enthused to do it with Mr. Hurley Kikenza. Uh, Mr. Kikenza is currently Global Force Management Analyst in Space Missile Warning and Defense Domain Awareness Emergency Action Controller at the North American Aerospace Defense Command and the U.S. Northern Command. Uh, Formerly, he worked as a secure operation console operator at the U.S. National Military Command Center at the Pentagon and the National Joint Operation and Intelligence Command Center, and as an assistant watch team chief for headquarters U.S. Marine Corps Service Watch Cell. And also previously, he served as the assistant detachment commander for the U.S. Embassy in Abu Dhabi, United uh, Emirates. Arab Emirates, the U.S. Consulate in Sao Paulo, Brazil and the U.S. Embassy in Lusaka in Zambia with the U.S. Department of State Bureau of Diplomatic Security and the U.S. Marine Corps Embassy Security Corps. All this to say that he's an expert and knows what I will be talking about and his take will be valuable for us all. So without further ado, Mr. Kakenza, welcome to Tricks of Politics and thank you for accepting my invitation.
1: Pleasure to be here.
0: Right. Pleasure. So. Um, at the outset, this episode, it's really, like I said, to define foreign policy and its different aspects and sort of making a um, educational episodes for uh, our listeners. So first and foremost, what is foreign policy and how can you define it in plain language without the uh, technical terms for an average citizen to understand and uh, digest it?
1: In the most basic form... Foreign policy is essentially the way we treat our friends, our family, our acquaintance. Like, you know, we, we practice foreign policy every day as individuals, you know, because you don't treat your coworker, your family members, your distant friend, your close friend all the same, right? You have a different approach to each one of them. So foreign policy translates exactly to that. How countries essentially establish rules. On how they engage other nations, so that's the the most basic definition that I can give to the audience on what foreign policy is
0: essentially. Mm-hmm. Great. Now, having defined it uh, sort of in that plain language, then can you tell us how is foreign policy practiced and by whom? So, foreign policy. Before we can dive into
1: that, I think you we we have to take a bigger a bigger view at least, because everything is essentially driven by what we, by national security. National security drives everything that essentially a country or a nation, uh, 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 I guess, interests in how they do things. So national security is supported by four elements of uh, instrumental power. As we call them, national instruments of powers. So at the spearhead of that, you have the national um foreign policy, which is your diplomacy, and then you have the economic policy. Those are like, you know, your your sanctions, you know, your trade deals, your, you know, embargoes, etc. And it used to be only three. They added, after the, in the 20th century, we added information. So that's information dominance. You that's, We talk about intelligence. We talk about cyber. We talk about all these aspects of information that you want to maintain dominance and you know spying and all that kind of stuff. And then the last result, we call it, that's the military. That's your national defense strategy. So all those main four instruments of power support national s- security. So. Foreign policy, like I say, is the spearhead. That's the first step. That's the one that you want to go out there and establish your national interests and let everybody know this is what I'm looking for. And based on how they react or accept that, is how you're going to essentially strategize how you will be further conducting business with them. So I'll give a quick example, right? Right now, Afghanistan. You know, the president, the U.S. president, came and said, "Like Afghanistan no longer serve a national interest to the U.S." So what? What? What did the foreign policy essentially? uh, The fallout to that: the embassy is no longer there, right? So we we don't we don't see the need to maintain diplomatic ties there, right? Because it wasn't there before the U.S. invaded in 2001, because it was a Taliban-led. We still didn't see eye to eye. But then the 9-11 attack happened. Then it was now a national security interest for the U.S. to never be attacked again from any terrorist group from outside anywhere in the world. And particularly from Afghanistan. So as part of that national security interest we decided it, you know usually when you have something like that you either you're going to go through diplomatic channels first foreign policy to establish uh, uh to establish any sort of uh solutions since we didn't have any diplomatic relationship so we quickly escalated to the three other instruments of power which is economic intelligence uh, information and military so economic, we started sanctioning anyone who helped the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and everybody, right? We started spying, making sure that we have intelligence and we maintain uh, information dominance on what's going on, global situation awareness. And then we send in the military to do what they did for the past 20 years. And then after the past 20 years, we realized, well, you know, Afghanistan, we took care of the, the guys that did the the, the, the attack you know, and then now we're just spending billions and billions every year. What really are we gaining out of this? Nothing. So the interests are no longer there. So there's when we decided, you know, diplomatically and militarily, we need to pull out of there. So that's kind of like almost like most recent and basic like aspect of how foreign policy essentially supporting national security dictated you know, geopolitics event in a particular country and region, you know. Hmm, sure interesting.
0: Yeah, well, that, that's, <clears throat> uh, that's good because, I mean, now it goes into, uh, so if we understand it correctly, sort of, so we start off with national security, then I guess those are the internal security interests of a country that will sort of inform their foreign policy as you define it in plain how then they're going to deal with other nations in, in terms of serving those national Interest. interests. Yes. So then then who who defines national security, you know, uh, who practice it? And you know how like how is it done? It's just like so, intellectuals. So sometimes we see like you know generals in the military, now we have civilians. Sometimes we'll hear you know uh, also academics, you know, with a PhD. So Like, what is the that community who defines it to practice it? Is it you know, for example, from the U.S. perspective, is definitely yeah, you know, uh, the president has that being a prerogative, but it's not only the president. You have the national security advisor and all of that. So, how is it like? How do you go about defining that community?
1: So, the national security community, like you say, is vast. Is it essentially entitles entitles everyone and everybody? You know, like that includes. Your, your your basic city uh your basic city within your state being prepared for you know contingency operation or anything like that it's, it's part of national security but the big umbrella where is national security essentially pulling all that you know strategy or information or those interests you know we start at the top at least from the U.S perspective you have the U.S Constitution right it has defines um like values there the defined values that the U.S should live by, you know, those values essentially, you know, as part of the national security is to protect those values and to advance those values, right? So from there, then we kind of build now how we sh- now we strategize how we will do that, right? Because like I said, the way you treat your friend, your coworker, and everybody is not the same, so you cannot use the same approach for everybody you know, to convey your interests. So each person will have to be dealt differently. So we design, so this national security strategy designed kind of break down how all these elements will be dealt with, you know, whether it's domestic you know, security, right? International security, you know, peace, all of that, you know, all these other values that we value, like, you know, freedom of rights, freedom, human rights, and all these other things, that how we going to protect these, how we going to project those, how we going to influence that to other nations. So then we divide it, we go to the foreign policy, like, we know each country is, you know, each country is different. They have different culture, they have different um, beliefs and all that stuff. So The diplomats now start strategizing on how, you know, we obviously we're using experts, you know, we're using former nationals of those countries that have been there, that live there, that know the system there, and they can tell us how, you know, we can engage them. So based on that, we know how to engage them. We know the particular people that we send there as diplomat, you know, who's going to be the ambassador of, let's say, the UAE. That person will be carefully picked, because he's going to meet certain criteria that we need him to utilize to kind of project our wheels there. And we know he's going to be well received, you know. So to the teeth, everything is kind of dry down, designed, and it stays there. Most of the time, those strategies, the stays, the, those are like 5, 10, 15, 20-year strategies, right? Like that's what's going to be like for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Until something dramatically changes within that region or within the U.S. itself, that's when you're going to see a little shift and change. When a president comes, he issues his national strategy, how he wants to approach things. That's just the approach. It doesn't change those national interests. The national interest doesn't change. However, the strategy how we go about them change. So that's why you're going to see whether, you know, we're sending troops somewhere or we're pulling troops some else, uh, elsewhere or we, we're putting sanctions or not. You know, all of that is pretty much just an approach. The the strategy itself, the interest itself doesn't change. It stays the same. And that's kind of why. You know there's a lot of you know i like to dismiss this oh these when you get a certain party in power they're gonna yes they're gonna do things different however the interests will be the same those doesn't change however the way they're gonna deal with you is just gonna be a different approach that's all then, that is
0: but that's interesting but then that begs the question how like who who then like decides to find those interests because if people are thinking like we live in a democracy, right, for the mm-hmm. people, because, for example, you'll see when you look at the polls and data, you see that uh, overwhelming like majority of Americans are not for, let's say, wars. Right. Mm-hmm. Having, uh, you know, boots on the ground, having, you know, uh, Americans being utilized and going as the frame to like, you know, fighting other people's wars or sending, you know, uh, their sons and daughters going to die in foreign you know, countries where, you know, sometimes they never heard about those countries right mm-hmm. so then the issue becomes like who defines what's the uh the national interest of a country is is it few you know few generals you know a small community elected people few you know intellectuals sort of you know the right books and then you know they give sort of an idea of where we think the country i uh, need to be or is it usually the imperative of let's say you know our, our our geography our economy what we need to do in order to survive or to protect ourselves so who gets to define what is the, uh, you know, the, the national interest of a country? And then I guess each president will will see how to go about it differently. But who defines the interest to begin with?
1: So there's there's multiple levels of interest. And based on the level of interest, the higher the interest is, more powerful, I guess, institutions will decide what that interest is. So at the very, very top is survival interest the united states need to survive as a government as a nation and way right that's like the constitution the highest interest so it trumps anything else right and then after that there is strategic interests like a you know let's say an example of a strategic interest we want to make sure that the indo pacific area that's the china you know philippines taiwan all that area which is like a lot of trade goes through And we want it to still remain free, that Chinese are not pretty much controlling, you know, pretty much telling everybody in those small countries in that area that, hey, you're going to do business here this way and directing essentially shifting the balance of global economy. So that's a strategic interest. So we want to maintain that. That's that's something that every president will maintain that strategic uh, interest. It's been established since post world war right you know we i i've i mean since when we decided to go remember in history how the we opened the, the American were the first to open trade with the East in China right so since then we that's a strategic interest we want to maintain so every any president that will come in will never change that strategic interest, however they will change the approach which is a a lower level of a strategic interest because at the president level, we're talking about strategic. They can change the approach, how we change, how we we go about maintaining that strategic interest. But that strategic interest itself is kind of part of the survivability. Like we want that to stay the same. And then you have like, you know, uh, tactical interests or operational interests. Like let's say, you know, we you know, operational interest, oil in the in the Gulf, in, in Kuwait, right? That's an operational interest. Where Saddam Hussein said, no, I'm taking Kuwait. We're like, no, 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 no. You cannot take Kuwait because there's a lot of oil there. And you essentially, having Kuwait in your own oil in Iraq, you essentially going to control a whole lot. And you might tilt the balance of the oil market. And it will affect us. So we're not going to let you do that. That was an oper- operational you know, um, interest, which can be, that can be the president, you know, secretary of state, all these guys coming together like, yes, we're gonna, that's, uh, that's an interest to us. We're not gonna let that happen. But eventually on a bigger scale, you can still see how, it still support a more survivable interest, right? A strategic, a more higher strategic interest that hey, if, Somebody else is topping the scale of the global oil market, especially back then, where we were so dependable on oil. You can, you kind of can see like where it was really not in the interest of the United States to let that happen, right? So we we go in first. We try diplomatically like, "Hey, don't don't try to do this. Stay away." He didn't listen. Guess what? We use the military. Go and take that back, essentially. Same thing in Iraq later on, you know, strategic interests, you know, we can debate whether it was this administration, did they like the guy that was in charge there? They were so invested in power too. I mean, the, the, the two Bushes, obviously. They were invested in oil and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, maybe they just wanted the guy to go, right? They're going to find ways. You know, you can always tie everything to U.S. national interests. It's really, you know, and that's kind of why I give the leeway but yet like to tell who decides to the question to who decides it just depend on the level of the interest and the actions that have to follow to support that so usually the president and his immediate national security council will kind of come together and just, uh, and make those tactical and operational interests within their the term of the administration. But those very high survivable interests and very high strategic interests, they've kind of been established by prior, you know, at the forming of the US becoming a superpower. You know, that's where those, you know, survival interests were kind of established. That hey, we are a superpower, we were gonna, we're gonna remain as such. Right? Because we've seen superpower rise and superpower fall. The U.S. is not intending to fall as a superpower. You know, that's the sort of viability, um, strategic interest that we talk about. That's kind of been established, and every, every president thereafter only here to support that. And if any president is to go against that, you will see something like we've seen with President Trump, how he was quickly, you know, essentially forced out.
0: Isn't it that like, you know, the deep state, like people talk about like the deep state, those deep interests or whereas, because in terms (laughs) of democracy, people can say like, you know, um, and let's for any president, not just President Trump, it can be, you know, President Obama Mm -hmm. or President Biden, any president, people can be like, he's at least elected by the vast majority of Americans. So he has more, you know, uh, legitimacy to, let's say, hey, because he had a program, let's Mm -hmm. say I campaigned for uh, pulling, you know, all of our soldiers, all the boots from the ground, pulling them out. Although, for example, it goes against the, um, you know, strategic interests, maybe of the level of the military, you know, industrial complex, those countries and everything. But I have the legitimacy because, you know, I campaign and the American people voted for me. So I have the legitimacy Whereas we see, you know, a few generals or a few other people from the intelligence community or, you know, security, uh, you know, advisory council, whatever. Like they have less of a legitimacy, but we see where they sort of kind of feel like they have a same voice or their voice has the same weight than a president who is elected. So. You know, how do you explain, you know, that dynamic within, you know, the I guess the foreign policy elite. So the the
1: way the way the U.S. is the system, in, the U.S. system is built is a a, a self sustaining system, right? Like one, not one person has total control. There's the check and balance that if if one person comes in there with a a a vision or a mission that is contrary to these high survivability and strategic interests is going to, the system will flush them out. It's designed to flush them out. That's, and that's, that's why other countries, especially in Africa, we don't have those type of system because you get one person who's in power is in charge of everything. Right. And then whatever he says goes here, you were the president or you were like, I don't know, somebody within, within the community, the, the foreign policy community or whatever. If you start acting in the interests that are against the national interests, the system will flash you out in, in, in some shape or form. So from people looking at, from the people outside looking in, they, that's when you think of the idea of a deep state because you still like, oh, I thought he was the president. Right? But they, they, they have a... Not everybody has a good understanding of how the systems are set up, you know. Because let's talk about foreign policy. Foreign policy, you have the president comes in; he's the head of foreign policy. He appoints in is is right hand man, the executive leader of that branch, uh, that that department, the Secretary of State. Secretary of State then goes in appoint. Uh, well, the president to Senate also appoints because the Secretary of State he doesn't appoint anybody. He can appoint his aide, but he the, the Senate and the Congress and the president still appoint undersecretaries under him who are in charge of region, like you are, you have Africa, you have Europe, you have Asia, you have, you know, South America, right? And then they appoint the sub-regions, you know, it's kind of breaking down and then to, up to the ambassadors, right? You know, the, you, the president appoints the ambassadors, obviously the Congress has to... Um, to, uh, to approve them. And the ambassadors, there are two different type of ambassadors. You have your courier ambassadors. Those guys, you, those guys are usually like, you know, in countries that where we know our strategic approach will essentially never change. Like, you know, in most countries in Africa, South America, small, some countries of America, you know, in Europe, not so much, in Asia, some country in asia but not the big ones right so usually you have your your career ambassadors those are ambassadors that serve president after president administration after administration they don't care whether they're democrat or not like they're career ambassadors and then you have your appointees those are political appointees like they have no experience in foreign policy they have no experience in anything they just like they knew they donated money to the campaign they're close to the president in some way they get appointed they get ambassadorship those guys they get appointed to places like you know most places like in europe you know Usually, all nice friends, right? All nice friends in Europe, we put appointees. But in places like Russia, China, you need career ambassadors, right? Because you cannot put an appointee there because those are strategic countries that we have to make sure that we those relations are well cultivated. Like we don't just put anybody. There. So, but you know, with our good friends, Europe, NATO members, and all that stuff. Okay, you're a buddy of the president. You donate money to the campaign. All right, go be ambassador. That doesn't mean you're going to be running the show. The charge d'affaires, who is a career guy, is been no longer, you're going to be the face of it. That most of the politics and the policies will be kind of bled from that guy. And then you're just going to be putting your signature in it, you know, and then he gives you kind of access to the political. You know, it's just a favor, essentially. So that's kind of how it goes as, you know, and it that's to ensure that all strategic interests are maintained, right? Because those career guys, they don't care about your politics. They don't care about your stuff. They're there to maintain the strategic interests that's kind of been established already. Administration after administration is the same. Now, the approach might differ because the new president can be like, career ambassador come here, this is how I want to do things. So he's relying on that expertise of that ambassador to tell them, like, hey, get it? This is how you want to do things. But I will tell you, the way it's going to have to work, it has to be done this way, you know, because based on my experience, I know this X, Y, So that's, you know, but they're still going to carry his approach. However, it's not really going to change the strategic interest itself you're just gonna change the approach while if you are appointed uh if you went there and tell like let's say right now right right now one a key example the us called taiwan you know it doesn't acknowledge taiwan as a sovereign nation but maintain a direct relationship with Taiwan that is a strategic approach that has been maintained across administration right a president can come and be like, nah, I'm gonna change this strategic approach. I want to acknowledge Taiwan as a sovereign nation, just like we said the last Trump administration said Israel is now the uh now Jerusalem is now the capital of uh Israel. You know, those those type of approach have consequences, you know. They might not directly change the high level of survivability of strategic interests, but that approach can, you know, trigger things geopolitical, um, I guess, uh, fallout in the region, right? So, he, he, you know, a president can change that strategic approach, but he got to be prepared. You know, the system might push back depending on the level of consequences. The system might push back, like, oh, this is kind of too, it's too close to shaking stuff.
0: Um, or the system who? That's why people are like when you say the system, yeah, the system meaning,
1: like meaning
0: those elite those elite in the you know the, foreign uh, policy uh, community yes those
1: elite le- in the foreign policy community using the system of checker balances to go back to congress like hey what we're seeing is damaging to the uh, survivable strategic interests you guys need to do something Right. It's not a deep state. It's all legal means. They're all legal means. These are all well-established constitutional legal means to make sure that the system flushes somebody that is threatening or endangering it. Right. Mm -hmm. So while other countries don't have that.
0: I mean, that's very interesting. And now if we uh, if you don't mind, we might just, you know, like zoom out a little bit Mm -hmm. and take, for example, because, uh, like I said, you know, you, you've been in uh, Luzak and Zambia, so we'll go in, in Africa because, I mean, let's let's sort of think as if, let's say, we're in the Congo. So, okay. you know, pretty strategic country, I might say. Mm-hmm. But if, first of all, you, you look at the Congo and you observe the Congo, I don't see any well, you know, um, plan out national security. Right It's sort of like each administration that comes in, we don't see a clear logic through their national security, so let's say no. for example, you are an advisor and then from not from the American but from the Congolese point of view mm-hmm. given the country the you know the history, geography whatever the the resources, what will be the the first level, what will be the sort of one two or three national interest of that country and how we can go about you know
1: implementing it, for example, so one thing, like I said, your country needs to establish national security interests mm-hmm. right once you establish your national security interest then you need to support you need to establish policies and strategies that will support that national security interest right that policy so in the foreign policy, your foreign policy now should be to adopt an approach that one give you, you know, that supports the interest or things that you need. Let's say right now the Congo probably needs investors. They will or they need, you know, a country like the US to come in and invest in the Congo, or like build infrastructure and all that kind of stuff. You know, so, you know, there's two things you can do this. You have resources that everybody wants, right? You know. Do you, the problem, do you control your resources? Because if, yeah, right now, you don't, you know, because foreign policy, you have to come at the table in a position of power with something that somebody else needs, which everybody needs the resources of the Congo. However, it seems like the Congo does not control much of its resources on this, right? So that has to change. The Congo has to find a way to regain control of the resources. How can you gain control of the resources? Because right now, the reason why, because any country, anybody operating in the Congo can be kicked out today. Go out, pick up your shit, right? International rule says pick up your shit, leave. The Congo does not have the means to of production because those guys will take all the equipment, all the machinery, everything, the supply chain, take it all out. The Congo will not have a means to produce everything that is producing right now, right? That means they will have to go and ask for somebody to bring in equipment. And that person who's bringing you equipment or enabling you to utilize your resources that you have on the ground, because let's say you have gold, you're sitting on gold and you don't have a shovel. How good is your goal? Mm-hmm. How good is your goal without a shovel? I have a shovel and I come in, well, guess what? I'll give you a shovel to dig or I can dig it myself and I take 60 To 70%. Leave it or take it, I'm the only one that can give it to you. What do you do? You're going to accept those conditions, especially if you're in die hard and in need of cash and everything. You're going to accept those conditions. Now that person essentially controls the majority of your, your resources. Me, the US, I'm coming in, I'm not really dealing with you for your resources. I'm dealing with the guy who's controlling, right? Mm-hmm. So you, when you come talk, when you come talk to me, come talk to me and asking me for your interests, your national security interests, and you want me to do things for you, I'm looking at what are my national security interests by me helping you, really, right? What are my national security interests? But now, if you go and you like, hey, you know what? I don't want this 70, 30% deal anymore. Nobody's taking this shit. Oh, now I can go buy, I can not go buy deal, buy resources with that guy that owns the 70% anymore because you kick him out. Now I might reconsider, right? I might be like, hmm, now I got to talk to you. Okay, let's figure it out. What do you want, right? So until you get to a point where, you know, if I still need the resources from you, which everybody needs, Then people are gonna come and talk. And right now, like I said, the U.S. national security interest vis-a-vis Congo per se is, as long as the status quo is maintained, is pretty much we're just gonna support free, democratic power. That's you know we're not gonna try to meddle a lot. You know we're gonna let y'all do whatever you guys do down there. As long as we are still served with. Our interest because our interest right now is the minerals, right? That's yeah, the well, only so, thing.
0: but not to catch off. So then from the Congress perspective, and I guess their first number one national security interest will be the control of their own resources. Yes, yes. Right? That should For be your
1: number one national security interest. Control all your resources. Because if you can control your resources, you can control the market because you have the majority percentage of the global market.
0: Right. And you then now control- when you add in like the security uh, component into it, then let's say if you are advising the Congolese president right now, so Mm -hmm. like how, how given all the uh, contingencies and all the, um, you know, blockades, it might have all constraints if you might put it that way. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of, we see what's happening in the Eastern side, you know, with all those young militias and other countries meddling. So then once we've established clearly, okay, our national interest, number one national interest for, let's say, the next uh, century is mm-hmm. to regain the control of our natural resources. Mm-hmm. Then the next step is, the next step. How, like I said, the approach.
1: How do we uh, so, implement it? Remember what I said at the very beginning? What supports national security interests is the instrument of national power.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Foreign policy... You have to have a very good influential diplomats XYZ. You need to have a strong economy, right, which they don't. You need to have good information. I mean, you know, you have global strategic awareness, so you won't step ahead of all your competitors, your adversaries, and everybody else. And you have a strong military, which the Congo has none. You have none. You don't have influential ambassadors, or foreign affairs ministers, right? a great diplomat that understand the geopolitics and can really leverage, you know, certain things to get people to commit into certain things, right? So you need, so you're essentially starting from scratch, right? So you have to find a way to rebuild that. You have to find find a way
0: to rebuild the instrument of national power. You know, How do you do that? How do we do that? Let's say for now, we, we're starting from scratch with this new, how do we, first of all, need those instruments of power? Let's say with the diplomatic corps, so, how do we attract young Congolese? That's right, the thing. Like- the, fir- the first thing is, like, you need your, your people to buy
1: in. The Congolese people have to buy in, in the bigger picture. Love for the country. You know, that's one thing the Americans have. After 9-11, you see they were divided. Like, everybody came together quickly. Yes, go get them. You know, people volunteered to join the military. X, Y, Z, left. You know, everything was done. During World War, factories, they all decided, like, yes, we're going to support the war efforts. You know, everything turned, like, you know, you need to have the people to buy in because when you have a people that you know that believe into their country, and the only way you can you can really have that. To be honest, right now with the Congo and based on its past, you know, you have to have transparency and corruption really has to go away. That's key because then the people can believe in the institutions. Because if they don't believe in the institutions you don't have anything to build from. You have mm-hmm. to have the trust of the people to believe in the institution. And that's why they, you know, here in the US, you, can, you see them how to really fight. They really, especially last year, or the past four years, they fought for the, to maintain, to preserve the institutions. When the former president was bashing the intel community, he was like, like, you can't do that. Because we want people to believe in these institutions because that's the one that keep all of this working. Because once you stop believing in it, it, it's gonna crumble. And that's how all these other powers have crumbled before because people stop believing in the institution. You know, they overthrew the their government, they, like all of that. You need to trust the system because if you can trust the system, then the system will be strong and then it can fix itself over time and over and over. So yes, so for the Congolese people, get rid of corruption, become more transparent, Now you get people to buy in and then start initiative like whether volunteering because people, there's going to be a lot of sacrifice to be made, right? Mm -hmm. You have to sacrifice. So people either have to volunteer for the time because there's no money or if there's money, pay them whatever you can. It's not going to be enough. But people will have to volunteer, trust the the system, volunteer the time and rebuild,
0: right? But what about the idea of, for example, there's a lot of, um, you know, other nationals of other countries of, mm-hmm. you know, of Congolese origins or ethnically Congolese or the parents, you know, Congolese mm-hmm. and or the grandparents, what have you. And one might argue like those are, for example, um, you know, uh, walking uh, ambassadors, you know, for those countries. And then like, how can the country utilize those people Right in terms mm-hmm. of establishing, because I mean, we're in the twenty-first century. Are we gonna do, um, like engage into national security or foreign policy the same way it was done in the you know eighteenth, nineteenth, or twentieth century, or in the twenty-first century? Let's say we we can say okay, we don't have um sort of a strong diplomatic corps, but we can use mm-hmm. those sort of uh, ambassadors and then mm-hmm. sort of leverage the power. And to serve the interests of trying to regain, you know, uh, the control of our resources. For example, if you, I don't know, you might have um, a a president or vice president or someone, you know, uh, major in the banking industry in the U.S. Or, you know, we can get them to lobby or advocate for the Congolese interest. And that's another way of utilizing, you know, those people for the interest. Because we see other countries, you know, for example, uh, Israel, for example, you know. Have some mm-hmm. of the friends there are Americans or they're Canadians, but wherever they are, they want to make sure that you know Canada or the United States is in close alliance with Israel mm-hmm. because they're tying their own uh interests based on their own history or family history with you know what happened through our history with the faith of the state of Israel and being in the United States, being Americans or Canadians they still want to make sure that the Canadians or the Americans' interests are aligned with those of Israel, so to sort of to maintain Israel. So from the Congolese perspective then, if we're trying to build up that, that diplomatic core, if let's say we don't have career ambassadors, then how do we utilize those um, you know, resources that we might have with these sort of their diaspora to make sure that they can uh, serve the approach of, you know, their national interest. So two things. I don't know if I, I don't know. Yeah. I I completely get
1: it. So two things, right. You have to be able one to support those guys that Mm you planning to utilize. You need to support them. And that isn't, you know, it, it doesn't have to necessarily be financial. Right. But and second, you have to have a, a, a strong base that it can reference. Because you, I can trust you. Like, oh, you you intellect you're an intellectual. You come to me, yes, you could. But then when I, you come here, you're telling me, oh, I need to go invest to your country. You are very I trust you. I've been working with you. You're a good guy. I know you. You're valuable. Then mm-hmm. I go and look in your country. There's no infrastructure for me to even start with. Right. There's nothing like so it's a hard sell. So I'm putting like your country now is putting you in a very tough position to sell, right? It's putting you in a very tough position to sell. So that's why I said you need to have at least something there that they they can reference, you can look, you know, we we've already done this, this, and that, and we just need that. So that's kind of how you lure people in. Because right now, think about it, the Congo is not to be like this. I mean, we had GM factories in the Congo in the Mobutu times, right? Right after the independence and everything, right? So investors were there. You know, everybody was coming in the, In the Africa, was coming to Congo to learn. You know, the university was respected. Because now there's no respect out of the country, right? That's why I say your foreign um, policy, your diplomatic core is weakened because they can't reference, you know, they can't reference, you know, their, their country as a, you need to be here, right? Well, the U.S. foreign diplomatic corps is well respected, and people wants to be like. I was in Zambia se, right? You know, and it happens all the time during the election when the president died back in 2014 or 2015. The president died, and then they they, had, they were holding elections. All the candidates were literally coming to the U.S. embassy, meeting with the ambassadors, right? <laughs> whatever they were talking about. I don't know. But they were coming in there, right? So that's just to tell you how influential that ambassador is because he has a country behind him that everybody wants to work with and wants to make sure that they're in the good side of, right? So that's how that diplomatic corps is empowered, right? You don't see the same thing. Nobody went to the, I don't know, uh, to the... Uh, I don't know, who who can I say? The Congolese ambassador, right? Nobody, mm-hmm. and then that's your neighbor, mm-hmm. right? Nobody went there, right? Because they know they're not getting anything out of there. So that's what, like, the, the diplomatic core is only as strong as the country it. Like I say, it's the first, the number one, That's because those are your people that are, you know, are out there, and that's why it's the first instrument of power for national security. Right? So you want you want to have a country that people can look at. Like, okay, yes, you know, because once you get control of your minerals and you cannot set your prices and everything, people won't want to have deal with you. So oh, I gotta go talk to the ambassador, the Congolese ambassador now. You know, I gotta talk to the Congolese special envoy now. Oh, I gotta make sure you have a relationship with some Congolese. You know. Uh, ambassadors, you know, or you know, so that I can get my country in on a good deal for, let's say, uranium. You know, that's that's how you utilize your resources, your country, to back your diplomats to do their job. Because now your diplomats are, you know, negotiating from a uh, position of strength, and they will always advance the national security interests first. Before they commit to anything, they make sure that they get the biggest share of the line. they're well served, right? because they're in a position to you want their business. So that's kind of how this whole umbrella works. You know? And the U.S has really mastered that like very, very well. you know the Chinese too, the, 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 the Russians, you know, they do you know, they send up people and you're dealing with their. You know, the their ambassadors, their deputy minister, like you know, you know, even the UAE is like utilizing that very very strong because when you go for like a, a country, if a US secretary of a department goes to the Congo, it will most likely be received by the president itself. If a president comes here, it's not guaranteed to be a one on one sitting down at the any president around the world is not guaranteed a one on one sit down at the White House. It's you know, it's just, just to tell you the level, you mm-hmm. see. Definitely. So, so if you cannot, you know, so to for you to engage to employ all your talents that are out there, you know, that can do the job. Because at the end of the day, those are the type of people that you want to put in to do the job, right? Mm -hmm. The talent. But if you don't have nothing to back them up with, to support them with,
0: you know, it's wasted talent, essentially. But how does the Congo then go, let's be practical and give solutions, because... Definitely, yes. this is not a it's short term, because this is a long sure. endeavor. Uh, uh, this we like, I say. We, like I said. Those uh, are long endeavors because we don't have, so how do they yeah. go about starting? Because I mean, are they going to just hire graduates from, uh, from universities who studied international relations? That's, or yeah, how, 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 how can the Congo go about building that strong well, you know, first national corp diplomatic corps so that they can project so first you know, you need instrument
1: you, of power? You do need those mindsets to go back and teach. You know, you I, you know, go and teach people the 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 people that I will be doing the job to understand how these things work. Right? There's a lot of talks, but you need to have things to back you up. But before we, but I think like like I said, for the Congo to really get there, you have to, you have to, you have to start from scratch. The Congo needs to first to you know. Reinvent itself. People need to buy in into nationalism, for lack of a better word. Like we need to put our country first, you know. And the government, the the current government or people that are in charge right now, have to. They are the lead for that. They have to make sure that people they can be trusted. The government, the system can be trusted. So they will number one, like I said, get rid of corruption. You have to. That's the easiest, simple thing that you can do. Stop corruption. You know that's the easiest and simple things you have control to do right now. You know enforce anti-corruption laws, punish people who, who, who engage in corruptions until the system is flushed from there. Corruption is flush from the system. People can, People like I said, this will take years. It's not for our generation to to live up to, for other generation that enjoy this once it's all said and done. We need to do the groundwork, you know. You get rid of corruption, now people can trust the system. Once people can trust the system, investors can come into your country, be like, okay, I can trust the the government will protect me, my investment, and there's not going to be corruption and I'm not going to lose money, right? They can come in because countries is not the government that builds everything. It's the investors that come in and build. People, money, you know, the business people, the Congolese people, they need to invest in their own country, you know Congolese people themselves like I said love for the love of the country you know instead of wasting thousands of dollars tens of thousands of dollars left and right you know they can start small business because now they know the government will make sure they it protect their investment and that can create jobs small job you know you know slowly you start getting some sort of economic Growth going within the country, like I say, you need a strong economy, instrument of power, right? If you cannot since you're not getting from your minds yet, you're not getting it from your minds because the goal is to 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 get there. Now you need a strong economy. I'll give you an example, like the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, right, okay. Dubai and all the stuff they have oil and stuff, right? Guess what? they started investing elsewhere to get more money. That's in tourism, right. They're creating an environment for investors to come in and dump money because they know at some point oil is probably going to run out.
0: But what do you say about corruption and stuff, like to have a you know, corruptor, you need also corruptees, right? Yeah. And then if someone is arguing, let's say, and we're just you know, thinking out loud, is arguing then. It, it is not in the national interest of other countries to see, for example, the Congo unify to have that sense of nationalism, to have control over their um you know natural resources or to deploy a strong diplomatic corps Mm -hmm. then i guess your answer would be well this is not a you know uh (laughs) this is not a kiss kiss or here it's tough it's really the survival of you know of the fittest whatever so internally Mm -hmm. when they have all these constraints if you're advising then how do they go you know forget this new let's say young you know, politicians who were born in the '80s, mm-hmm. '90s, they're getting into it now, the becoming of age, more maturity. Now they want to regain control, right? Want to regain control. So let's use this uh, scenario. They want to regain control now, cognizance of all that constraint. Mm-hmm. Then how do you know how do they do it? First, you got to f- start by like, you know convincing their own citizens first to buy into, to give them first a vision, and then but just rebuild with a vision. So let's make it more you know, concrete. For- well,
1: first, you always, like I said, leaders have to lead by examples, right? Like, said, If you're going to enforce corruption, anti-corruption law yourself who doing that, you have to make sure that you're not doing it.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: you're transparent with that. So people can be like, OK, you are the leader, you're not doing it, and you're enforcing it. Got it. And like I said, there's two sides to corruption. The one who's corrupting and the one who is accepting the corruption. Both have to be punished, right? That's two. And like I said, nationalism has to be, you know, it has to be ignited because it's there in every Congolese. However, it just has to be ignited. It has to be ignited and you have to be ready to fight because like you said, there's people out there for whose interest is that Congo remain as it is, right? You need to understand that and you have to fight for that. So while these initiatives are taking place, part of nationalism, you have to support it. You know, if the government say, "Hey, we're going anti- with anti-corruptions," don't encourage it. Don't you don't don't help bad guys engaging in corruption get away. You know, denounce it. You know, everybody has to support those initiatives. Like, you know, become, you know, bring the nation, put the nation first, because that's how you start changing the mind. Because I'm telling you, once somebody see, you know there is accountability being exerted at the very top all the way to the bottom, right? They see that, okay, they're, more le- they're less likely to attempt or engage in, uh, in those type of behavior because they see, oh, if he could get it, what do I mean? I would definitely get it, right? So they're less likely like that. And then the more you start doing that, you, you, you're you going to grow love, for your country, seeing the transformation. And that's usually why, you know, you create a generation of change because that's really where that passion even grows even more when you can see the change happening, right? You can see happening, oh, I remember I used to go and then every time, you know, we're gonna get pulled over, you know, the guy will pretty much ask us for money and now you just get pulled over and then they ask you for your stuff, they see it and put it back. You're like, wow, that, 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 you know, that change. You know, those are the small things that people, it would affect people's mindset. It's like, you know, trashing trash in the, in, in the street, right? If you can, like, hey, you do that, you get a fine, you get arrested or whatever. By the way, we're just not going to tell you not to do that and not give you um, uh, places to put your trash. Here's a new place for you to put that trash and everything. Okay, you know, see, mindset change. And then over the years, It's just going to grow, and it's going to be part of us, that we're going to start thinking like that. So now once you have that, once you have that initial buy-in, that's all you need. Now people can come in and look. Because there's outside investors that want you to do good, while other people don't want you to do good, but there's still people that want you to do good. And those are especially the ones that go out there, like the U.S., oh, we want democratic, free society, Nonviolence, non-corruption. Well, guess what, US? We got rid of corruption in our country, right? We're doing good. Can you now show us the love that you promise that you show to people that you know embrace your visions? Because that's essentially what you want. You want to spread the idea of America around the globe, and you're getting ready to support anybody that will accept that. Can you come support now? Now you put them in the spotlight. You know, put your money where your mouth is. You know, come invest, our know, for actually, we need this, we need that. Can you help us with roads? Can you help us with, you know, our electric grid to help that? Now you have electric grid, you have roads. Good. Now investor be like, oh, yeah, I didn't want to come there because I couldn't even move my goods because you didn't have roads. Oh, now I have roads. Can you now bring your business? Can you now, you know, like slowly you're building an economy. Once that economy is kind of like, self sustaining is a little strong now you can go back and renegotiate your your big money makers your minds. you can buy out of those contracts that you that you know that didn't serve you well to regain control of that you might get a lot of pushback right from people who interest is not going to then again you can use their own word against them because the major power that are really benefiting out of that are also the one that promotes, you know, free and healthy, uh, you know, mining, you know, no child labor, no no, no rebellion. Like, hey, what are you doing? You say that's what you needed, right? You know, you put them on a – so that's how you use diplomatic. Right? You have to be smart about it. You know, rule somebody in, you lure them in, and then you use their own strategy against them, you know, That's how, if you want to regain control, you have to humble yourself. Start from the beginning. Don't be very ambitious because you're going to be quickly shut down. You know, start slowly until you get more strength. The more strength you have, the more you can negotiate and establish deals that works for you. The less strength you have, you're always going to be, you know, the loser of any deals. It's always, people will always take advantage of you, you know. So, that's that's a process is not is not be is not going to be done today tomorrow in fact like that's a long process we're talking about next generation really but us doing the work first you know the mentality at the very top has to change you know you just like let's say you and you aspiring you know foreign leader i mean for a foreign policy leader ambassador or anything you know you need to like as a diplomat, my job is not to be corrupt by the Chinese, to allow them to come and build whatever thing, right? Whatever thing in my country, and take seventy percent. That's not my job because they paid me money and I'm gonna close the. I will turn the blind eye. You need to have some sense of nationalism. Like no, I'm not gonna accept this deal because you know while you offering me hundreds of millions for myself and my family. But it does not benefit the nation, you know. So you need to have the mindset, the love for the country, you know. And I don't think we've got to that point. So it's going to take a lot of sacrifice because U.S. diplomatic officers, they're well paid, they're well, you know, they're, they're provided for, you know. It's not as much as what they offered when the Chinese trying to bribe them or anything like that. But they have severe laws that they know they will face if they accept that bribe. You know, we're talking about prison time and sometimes treason and all kind of other stuff, right? That's one. Two, Two, they have the love for the nation. They have the love for the country. So they will not even, you know, consider that. But there's systems in place, essentially, to help them there. They're well paid. They have accountability that would await them if they accept who engage in any type of these things, and two, the love their country. So we need to have the mentality, and we need to have a support system. You know, the country has to support it. Create an economy that you pay 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 your functionary on time, pay them a livable wage. You know, it doesn't have to be crazy money. Livable wage for compensate them for their work, right? And two, have accountability in place, anti-corruption. And that person with that, that person has to now develop the love for his country. So when you select them, you have to assess how, you know, how patriotic they are. You can't just be, you know, hiring them because they have degrees and they have expertise. How, how, how truly patriotic are they? You know, because that's some of the evaluation we really had to go through. You know, are you going to support the Constitution of the United States? You know, against all enemy, foreign or domestic. And I say I do, and once you say I do, then you're accountable for it now. If you don't support it,
0: so mm-hmm. it's very, you know, it takes it a lot. Go, the interest might go against your whatever your yeah, uh, exactly ethnicity or your people where they came from, whatever. But when you buy in into the idea, you have like to, I'm you an American, buy- mm-hmm. you know, let's say for example, I mean, it's not gonna happen. But let's say for example, just for sake of discussion, where hey. I'm now in a position where, if it served the interest of the United States, let's say, to bomb that country, <laughs> and then you're like, "Oh, these are my people." Like, no, these are not your people. So,
1: so, so the U.S. does a good job about that, where the 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 keep you from assignment that will not bring conflict of interest.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, like that's why I never served in DRC.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, they never wanted to send me there because I was from there. I also lived in Gabon when I was young, so they wouldn't send me there either. You know, They mm-hmm. would not send you a place or put you in a position that you will ha- exercise conflict of interest. So if you're in a mm-hmm. position as such, you're going to recuse yourself. Mm-hmm.
0: You're going to
1: have to recuse yourself because if you don't, then you're liable for any um, misconception or assumption of conflict of interest for mm-hmm. decisions that you carried. Of
0: course, because your decision can be emotional, it can be... It can be yeah, exactly. So you have, like yeah. you said, you have to spend your childhood or whatever in Gabon. Yes. It might not be from there, but you'd be like, oh, yeah. this is, you know, the place I was running when I was a kid, I was playing yeah. soccer there, whatever. Yeah. So you can have yeah. that emotional tie to so, it.
1: So all of that, yeah, you know, all of that, it's a can for it. I mean, you. that's what you really have a system, you know, and it, I know we have those things in our laws in Congo and everything. It's just people, they don't follow it. They don't care. And they just do it's self-interest. Everybody for himself, you know. why do I get out of this? And that's the mentality that you need to purge. You know, like I say, the, only, the corruption is the first thing that you can literally take action on. Like literally, from the, it start from the top. Be transparent and get rid of corruption. That's an easy fix. Easy fix, not easy, but like actionable. I guess the first, yeah, actionable. Yes, it's, it's actionable thing that you can. Mm-hmm. Start right now. Enforce it. And then like I said, the way you can enforce anti-corruption law is make sure that you pay your people. You, know, you have to pay your people. You know, you have to pay them livable wages. Pay them, pay them, pay them. Because with all the tournament, like you know, people stealing money, all that money. Go back to the go back to the to the treasury, the national treasury, and pay people with it. And then exercise now accountability for corruption. Because if you can pay them, then you can exercise, you know, accountability. And now people will be like, okay, now I have to buy into nationalism. You know, because they're paying me. And there's accountability that awaits for me if I engage in this. Well, now it's easier for you to pretty much judge them whether they're, they're patriotic or not. Because you're going to see somebody who's driven by money. Yeah. Okay. It seems like you know, because when you assess somebody, you know, you have you have, psychological doctors that can do the job that assess people, especially at those, very strategic positions. You know, we want to make sure that you somebody is not self-interest. You know, it's easy to you can you're gonna see patterns in their lifestyle and everything. Okay, this guy is not for the country. He shouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's very like those are like very simple actionable things that that can be taking places right now. And those are how you change, you start changing the mentality before you move on to the big stuff. Because there's a lot of things people just want to move to big stuff real quick. It's, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't happen overnight. Like Especially from where we, like the level that we are right now, it doesn't happen overnight. you really going to have to invest. That's why, like I said, strategic stuff here, I told you it's like 5, 10, 15, 20 you know, sometimes 30 years strategic set by the time the strategic comes to you, see the result of that is 10, 15, 20 years after the strategic. Well, how do you,
0: how do you, because um, a lot of people live for now, you know, let's say when you're a dire poverty or dire condition, and as a leader, <laughs> if you know you are trying to get elected or you're trying to buy into that idea, like you said, and you're telling, let's say, parents, someone like, hey, this is plan here will bear fruit in 30 years or materialize in 30 years he's telling like hey that's, that's, that's good the thing should, but i, that, I gotta I, you know i gotta feed my kid now so what are you gonna do for me now right so how so, do you change the mind of the people you get them to buy into that 30 years or are you impose an elite where an elite have a vision or so that's that's, that's where can pop, be that, done at the same time
1: That's where politics come in place, right? You know, great politicians are great politicians. You, you first, you need if you want to, you if you want to exercise change, you need to get to a place to make change, right? How you get there? Use politics. Get there first. Use politics to get there. But once you get there, that's where your true nature really comes out. You know, that's where your true nature. Are you a patriotic person? And if you're a patriotic person and you have a vision. Right? and you know your vision is a, a 10, 20 years from now, your main concern, if, you, if you know it's a good strategic vision, you should implement it, regardless how people are feeling, because you know that that's why you know, most of the time people are hated when they are in the office, and then 10, 15 years later, the people appreciate them now, because they're leaving the fruit of that vision, And he appreciating it now, like, oh, now, you know, JFK, he was like, we got to go to the moon. We got to do this. We got to do that. We got to do all this stuff. And they killed him. They didn't like the way he was doing stuff, but he had big visions. But now he's loved, you know, he's loved, right? So that's that, like, you have to have a vision, people. And if you have big vision like that, people are not, people are not entry. People, like you said, people are hungry. They need it now. That's why do the actionable stuff, the small stuff that you can action to change the mentality, do that. That, that's, that will help keep the population at ease, seeing the, some sort of change that's happening now, that you while, you know, you're setting the seed for your big stuff. You know, do the small actionable stuff that people can see changes happening now. Like, A, when they get on the goddamn uh, taxi bus, they're not being harassed by, you know, police left and right. You know, they can commute, you know. You know, you can start buildings, you know, like clear out, uh, like big uh, big roads so that there can be less traffic. Those are small actionable stuff that you can do. But, like, you know, that's just to, to appease the population here and there and there. For the minute while you're planting the seed of your big thing, because it's really when you're going to be gone long after you're gone. That if you properly did it, you kind of changed the mentality, planted that seed that people will kiss. The legacy will be carried by other. No one comes in, put a, a legacy and carry it himself. No one. You just come in, you plant it, and somebody else will carry that for you. You know, think, look about uh, Obama and Biden. Biden is essentially carrying some, a lot of Obama legacies that he wanted to do. At the same time, implementing his own, you know? Mm -hmm. At the same time, putting his own, also carrying some of that, while Trump came in and he trying to undo everything that Obama has set in place to go forward, right? It's like somebody else will have to carry your legacy, but if only if you planted the seed properly and you set up an environment for that seed to grow. You have to plant it and set up the environment for it to grow. Because if you don't, then we're just going to be in a loop cycle. Anybody comes in and trying to do their thing and then, you know, fail. You know, you're never going to get anywhere.
0: Because if you're going
1: if, if to plant your, your seed, I come mm-hmm. in, like, and ah, I don't like your seed. Take it out, put mine. That seed will let somebody else do the same thing with mine. It will never grow.
0: Mm-hmm. It will never
1: grow. And that's why, you know, going back to national pro, um, foreign policy and the US national security interest, I told you those big strategic interests, survivable interests, those are like the big seed that just growing and growing and growing. And everybody just supporting that. Now you can play down below and it's changing your ways, your approach, and everything, but it's still supporting. That's why it's so easy for them to come in, it's in the national security interest. Because Mm -hmm. in some shape or form, it's still supporting that. So if you don't have a big vision like that, a big strategy like that, a long-term one, because right now the long-term strategy for the Congo is to be one, have control of all its mind, all of it, all of its resources, they need to have 100% control. Whether it's privately owned by Congolese or government, it has to be 100% owned by the Congo. Right? It has to be. That's how you gain independence from all these foreign interference and everything else. Now you can negotiate at the table because you have valuable resources that everybody needs, right? You can control the narrative, but only after you have regained control of that. If you don't have control of that, it's, it's hard to do, because there you have to find other ways. To to generate money, economic because economic is your number one drive. If you are strong economically, you have possibility for everything. You can build a strong military to defend you against all the the potential enemies and invaders and everybody else, and to maintain order within your own border. Right? You can create a system of information to keep you aware because you have the money to support those, and you can create good diplomats. You know. Now you have your strong instruments of powers. They're there in place for you. And then the resources for you is really the sustainment, how you sustain your economy, how you sustain all that. It's the money making for you, your resources and the money. So while other people, other countries, like especially in Europe, they have to go find money elsewhere because they don't have the resources to, to, to that, that, that guarantee them that money. They have to go look for it elsewhere so that it can maintain all the, their instruments of powers. You know, they have to, but you have the money making right there. Right? You have the money making right there. So you can easily sustain all your instruments of powers and remain in power. And you know, it's you know, it's it's such a blessed country, but like I said, mentality will have to change and. It only can change to small actionable stuff. Do the small actionable stuff. Corruption is like it goes a long way. And then there's corruption. Like there's no country without corruption. It happens in many shape or form. But like the 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 obvious and blatant that one has to go away. That one has to go away, like the blatant and obvious, like, oh my god, you know, because there can be corruption in terms of favors. Okay, I did you a favor, you see what I mean? Because I know when you're gonna get this, you're also gonna be, but it's not gonna affect you know people in a very bad way, essentially. It's just morally and ethically, it's wrong, right. But people do that all the time. Oh, you got hired because you know somebody. That's, that's a form of corruption. Right? So it's everywhere. But the blatant one, like here, you're not going to corrupt a cop in the U.S. This is never going to happen. You're going to get arrested on the, on the spot as soon as you're trying to huh, bribe them. I'm not saying that there's no cops out there that, to, that, to, that have taken bribes. I'm not saying that. That is like widely... Unaccepted. You know that's where you need to get to, like that, that mentality. Like, you like where I am scared to bribe somebody. I want to make sure the way I talk to them is like, hey, no, I'm not bribing you at all. You know, it sh- people should be scared to bribe authorities, you know, and, and authorities should be scared to take bribes. You know, everybody should be scared to engage in bribery. So, you need to get to that, to that level. And that's I think that's the easiest the easiest action of actionables you can do without, you know, just enforce your laws. Cause it's mm-hmm. already in your laws. Enforce them. Well, you need to pay those people that are enforcing those laws. And you need to pay those people that are, you know, in your government, you know.
0: That's how the whole, the system has to work as designed. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's really great. Thank you for that, but that that wraps it up good too because of the uh, sort of the summary that you gave. So before uh, ending our conversation today in this uh, episode, do you have? Because at the end we always like to have a book suggestion for our listeners or other people who wants to uh, to deepen uh, their knowledge on the subject matter, where foreign policy and national security, all of that. So if you have any any book suggestions. A book, well, foreign policy is so it's so
1: big because, I mean. Well, let's say a beginner.
0: <laughs> let's say a beginner, you know, not a uh, expert. Wow, lover. for a
1: beginner.
0: Let's say, you know, like just a, a lay person, you know, average Joe, you know, trying to yeah. get it. It's like, you know, I'm hearing all this. How, let's say I watch CNN, ABC, MSNBC, so all that. You all know, this watch, Afghanistan. For, the, how do I start making sense of it? You know, do I read, uh, you know, M- Mersheimer? Do I read Professor Waltz? Like No. You know, I
1: think Rich. Uh, this book by uh, what was his name? Richard Richard Hess. I think his name. Yes, Richard Hess. Uh, and I think, and then it says, foreign policy begins at home. It's a uh, it's, it's it's a good start for beginners. Like foreign policy begins at home. It's a great start for beginners because, like I said earlier, like you know, we engage in it every day. Mm-hmm. Like as as uh, as a. Uh, as just people of society, like we engage in it, like when you, like I'll give a good example is like, you know, when you get a phone calls, there's certain phone calls you pick up and it's certain like you, uh, you don't mind ignoring, right? The mm-hmm. same ways when ambassadors calls or ministers call the ambassadors and they like, hey, yeah, he's busy or oh, it doesn't like, you know, the same way where a country calls. Oh, yeah, yes, we get we're going to patch you into the president. Oh, we're going to patch you to the secretary of state. Oh, we're going to patch you to the ambassador. Another country calls that. No, um, can we take a message? You know, he has you know, he has
0: conflict of schedule. No, he cannot meet. No, it's the same thing, okay? Yeah, so it's Richard, Richard and has foreign policy begins at home. The case for putting America's house in order. So, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, once you grasp that. You can look how how foreign policy is playing out around the world. That like we we, tr- we treat our friends very well, you know, our no so called friends, meh. you know, our enemies totally differently. So it's, it's the same same approach because but at this everything that we do, it's serving us. You're making sure that we're not losing anything. We we putting ourselves in the best position how we're dealing with our friends, with our enemies, or anything. So it's all. You know it's really it start there making sure that you, you if you can identify your interests your you know what you need what makes you better then you can deal with everybody else if you cannot do that then you're going to be taken advantage well because that's how you set your limits and everything else but yeah mm-hmm.
0: interesting well hurley thank you very much for our pleasure joining us here at tricks of politics i hope we'll have you back again for other subjects uh this episode was really to sort of define and uh, delineate the contours of uh, foreign policy you know all its aspects and uh, you know to bring it back on the layperson's level so thank you very much for your availability and uh, hopefully you can join us again
1: Uh definitely thank you thank you
0: all right that's it for us, guys. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. Reminder to follow us on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, Breaker, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Castbox, Overcast, and share it with your friends and family. And also follow us on Twitter at Tricks of Paul and Instagram Tricks of Politics. Until next time, please be kind to one another. I'm JR De Quilu, your host. So long.